Please stand for the reading of the word. We're reading uh, Romans 3, 21 to 26. Oh man, this is small. (laughs) But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through the faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. None have, none have stood up, sorry, none have, uh, the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and have fallen short to the glory of God. And there are, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes from Christ Jesus. God presented from his sacrifice of atonement a thorough faith uh, and through his faith in its blood. He did this, sorry, <laughs> is it on the board? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, sorry, where were we? <laughs> and justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came from Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to, deto- to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished and did it to demonstrate to his justice at the present time. So, as to be uh, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So there is a handout while the children are dismissing. Um, I do have a handout that Travis will be bringing around, and and I forgot to mention this yesterday that. Um, the handout from yesterday on the back of it, you probably noticed this, but we put together a little bit of a recommended reading list. And so if this subject is something you want to explore more, um, both in terms of the theoretical side of it, um, more, you know, a few good recommended books on the cross and the meaning of the cross. And then also there was a list of on the more applied side of it, what difference does the cross make for life, and so there was a handful of books recommended there as well. And I can send that to you if you uh, have misplaced yesterday's handout and are otherwise interested in the book list. All right, so handouts are going around. Excellent. I think uh, most of you. No, we, we move this summer, and any time you move into a new place, you discover all of the different weird quirks of that new house that you didn't know about when you were shopping for it or whatever. And, and um, a few weeks ago, we discovered uh, one of the quirks of our new house is that the bedroom doors upstairs, instead of having the normal kind of bedroom door handle where you push the button and then like you just, you can either put a you know, a hairpin in there or else like a quarter and turn it to unlock it if the door gets accidentally locked. All of the bedroom doors upstairs 
had locks that actually took specific keys to them. And which explains when we moved in a drawer full of nameless, labelless keys that we found. So we're like, you know, we had no clue what those were for. And we discovered this because Chloe had gotten into the habit of locking the door, you know. Uh, but this time she locked it and pulled it shut. And so I get this text, this kind of panicked text that Chloe has locked the door to the bedroom. And once I figured out, you know, she didn't lock herself in, uh, but we could not get it out. So we went for the, the drawer of keys, right? And Carissa exhausted the drawer of keys. Not a single one of them worked. So me being a guy, I'm like, let me try it. So I come home and I go through the door, the drawer full of keys. And, uh, and you know, sure enough, uh, none of them worked. So we, you know, just kind of stuck with this locked door. I'm thinking, you know, take, I can't take the hinges off because they're on the inside of the door. So I, I kind of figure, well, I've seen this on like MacGyver or James Bond. So I go for the credit card, right? Uh, you know, and I make sure I find an expired one because, you know, I don't know what kind of damage this thing's going to do. Although Dave Ramsey would kill me if he even knew I had a single credit card, but, uh, so, so I go in there, and I'm thinking this is going to be like one of those moments like Jason Bourne or something. You just kind of pop it, and it opens. And, and I go, and, and within like a minute or two, the card is mangled. I can barely get it around because there's always that lip, that trim, that's meant to keep you from being able to do those kinds of things. So I get it in there, and I mash it in there, and it doesn't go. So I decide, well, we're just going to have to you know, go medieval on this door, I get out the chisel and hammer and I clear a path to get access to the credit card. And, and so I've like got, you know, you know, chips of wood all over the floor and a nice clean target. It will not budge. And I've got a meeting at seven o'clock at 615. It's 30 minutes to get where the meeting is. I've got like this sliver of a window to get access because, you know, yeah, anyhow. So then it dawns on me. That when we were painting, and I think it was Josh Halberstadt that painted the closet in that bedroom. Uh, you might remember this. I don't know. It was one, one of our, our many friends who helped us. Uh, and I remember doing a little work in there too. And I remember in the closet, there's a trap door to the attic. Like the original trap door to the attic. And since then, they had built a pull down in the hallway. So I figure, well, if I can go up into the attic, f- dig through the insulation find that trap door, assuming it's not sealed, maybe I can get into the bedroom. And so I do it and it's a mess and I find the trap door and, and I, and so you have to picture like that scene in Mission Impossible where Tom Cruise is like lowered down, only no rope, you know, I'm just kind of hanging down in there and I get down in the closet and I open it and it's this moment of glory. And, uh, now that has almost nothing to do with our sermon this morning. I just wanted to tell that story. It, but I'm going to try and connect it. <laughs> this is not what you're supposed to do in preaching, but every now and then you just got to throw something out there like this. So here's how I want to connect it. Where am I at here? If you, if you can think about our relationship with God, this is a stretch, just so you know. If you can think about our relationship with God as a, as a room... And in that room is endless treasure, you know, inexhaustible riches. As Paul describes it, his riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. But the door to that room has been locked because of our sin. And there is no key in your drawer that can open that door. There's nothing you can do. 
And in this case, there's also no trapdoor in the closet. And that's where my analogy completely breaks down. There's no key. There's only one key to unlock that door and invite us into all of the riches of our vast uh, relationship with Christ. And that key is what we've been talking about this, afternoon, uh, this weekend, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That's the only way in. Now, yes, that was a weak, that's what you call a weak connection in preaching illustrations to the point. But hopefully you get the point. There's only one key. And, and we have been exploring that key. We've looked at it from the perspective of the Old Testament, the pattern of substitution, uh, the Passover lamb, the suffering servant. We uh, looked at it in terms of the person, the substitute, Jesus, and how he understood his ministry, not as being taken advantage of by his father or being ill-treated or abused, but as a willing servant who gave his life out of love. He knew full well what he was doing. He was in on the plan since before creation and, and in order and to give his life in love to rescue sinners. So we've seen it, the pattern, the person, and now I want us to uh, see the power of substitution. What difference this makes for our everyday life? What kind of riches do we find when we walk into the room and explore uh, the full uh, fullness of relationship with God? But I want to start by looking again one more time at the key itself. I want us to see from the New Testament letters how even here the substitutionary work of Christ is the key to relationship with God. And we're going to do that in Romans 3.21, the passage that was just read a minute ago. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, head to Romans again. A little bit of context on Romans. So Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. That's why it's called the letter to the Romans. Um, And it it is uh, written to to the Roman church before Paul actually had a chance to visit there. If you remember in Acts... Kind of the whole story when Paul gets in there eventually begins moving like the last, like, I don't know, uh, probably almost 10 chapters of Acts are Paul on his way to Rome. He wants to get to Rome to preach the gospel. And, and uh, in Acts, he's in Rome by the end of it, in prison, but he's in Rome. You turn the page to Romans and he hasn't gotten there yet. This is a letter he wrote before he got there to the Romans because he wanted to get there and preach the gospel among them. He tells them, I've been longing to go and to preach the gospel. I'm under obligation to both Jews and non-Jews to preach the gospel of Christ. And so this letter that he's written in advance of his visit is both a declaration of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and a defense of God's righteousness, specifically in how he chose to fulfill his covenant with Israel through his eternal son, Jesus. Uh, If you remember that the church grew out of Israel. Jesus was a Jew. All of the disciples were Jews. And, and, uh, but very quickly, they, you, you begin to see, especially in Acts, you begin to see some non-Jews having faith in Jesus and becoming part of the family of God. This was kind of a category buster for a lot of the people uh, early on. Because in their mind, uh, it, this God was the God of Israel. And now all of a sudden we have these non-Israelites coming into the fold and they weren't sure what sense to make of that early on. Uh, Since the time of the Exodus, Israel had been God's covenant people. They're the ones to whom God had given his law. Um, 
the idea that through faith in Jesus, that these Gentiles, Gentile is a word that means non-Jew. Sometimes you'll uh, see it, the Jews and the Greeks, or the Jews and the Gentiles. Gentile or Greek in those contexts it refers to non-Jewish people, people not descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, so the idea that through faith in Jesus, these Gentiles who never had the law, didn't obey the law, things like circumcision or, or food restrictions, um, that they could be included in God's covenant people without keeping the law. And some Jews who had the law and tried to obey the law but didn't have Jesus were now excluded. That was just scandalous early on. And they didn't know what to do with that. And so some of them questioned whether that was true. And some of them questioned that, well, if that's true, then God seems unfaithful. Didn't he make a promise to Israel? Didn't he uh, make this covenant with his people? How in the world can some who, are not, some who are Israelite not be part of the true Israel? And, and so God's righteousness, his justice, was being questioned by some as they heard the preaching of the gospel. God seems unfair to his covenant people. And so Paul is writing to preach the gospel, but also to defend God's righteousness that, no, he has the right to fulfill his promise through Jesus, and he's fully justified and righteous in doing that. His answer to the question of God's righteousness is the gospel of Jesus. Look at chapter 1 real quick. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, kind of the uh, theme verse for the book. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Christ. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, that's where the whole plan of salvation came from, and also to the Greek. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Here's his reason. Verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. God makes his righteousness known through the good news of Jesus. Uh, And that was scandalous. Um, That was scandalous in part because many ethnic Jews thought that they didn't need the gospel. They had the law. The law marked them as belonging to the covenant, having a relationship with God. So, So what do they need this other thing? But even more scandalous was Paul's explanation that that not only Jews, but all people could have a right relationship with God. And it was no longer marked by the law. It was marked through faith in Jesus Christ. That was the access point. That was the access point. That was scandalous. And God was fully justified in accomplishing his program in that way. The heart of Paul's argument. So much of this book... He's defending God's righteousness as he explains the gospel. The heart of his argument is the passage we heard read a little bit ago. To me? Move the other side. Oh, maybe it's my shirt. I'll tuck it in. When Drew gives an instruction, you need to obey. All right. There we go. Um, so, uh, turn to chapter 3, Romans 3.21 to 26. Uh, this is what some people have called the center of the whole Bible, this passage that we're looking at, where all of the threads of the big idea of Scripture come together. Um, and so, and really, this is where we see the key. 
This is where we see the key that unlocks the treasure of all of the riches in Christ. And it is his substitutionary atonement. So verse 21, uh, Paul begins by announcing a new display of God's righteousness through Christ. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been revealed apart from the law. Uh, Not through Israel's covenant with Sinai. Apart from that, it's been revealed. Although the law and the prophets, Israel's scriptures, bear witness to it. So this this shouldn't have shocked you if you were paying attention to your Old Testament, Paul says. Uh, And we saw that yesterday, right? The righteousness of God that's manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In Jesus, God is doing something new. So yes, Israel had a special covenant relationship with God. Yes, God displayed his righteousness and glory through that covenant relationship. You remember the glory shining from Moses as he would come down with the law having met with God. But remember also, it was a fading glory. It wore off over time. And the glory that comes now through Christ is an unfading glory. Uh, it's, it's the fulfillment. It shows you that, the, that for all of the glory of the old covenant that Moses gave, uh, it was but a shadow of the true glory to come in Jesus. And so God is displaying his righteousness in a new way. His upright covenant faithfulness. It's displayed not through Israel's law, but through God's Son, through faith in Christ for all who believe. And the emphasis there is on the all, both Jew and non-Jew. All people are invited into relationship with God. Because when it comes to the gospel, continuing now at the end of verse 22, there is no distinction. When it comes to the gospel, there is no distinction. Your heritage, your uh, ethnicity, whether you're Israelite, non-Israelite, uh, the color of your skin, your gender, none of that matters. There's no distinction when it comes to the gospel of Jesus. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. Is a level playing field. No one's born with an advantage or a corner on relationship with God. Because we're all born uh, in sin. And we're all guilty of sin. Uh, this, this phrase here, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, that's what Paul spent most of the first three chapters trying to demonstrate. Starts off by talking about how the wrath of God is revealed against all this lawless behavior that the Gentiles were kind of known for. But then you get to chapter 2 and he's like, oh, and by the way, you who judge people for doing these things and breaking your law, guess what? You do them too. And he indicts Israel for the same things. All have sinned, Jew, Gentile, we're all guilty, but we are all with hope. God has not failed his promise. So again, starting at the beginning of verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There is hope for both Jew and Gentile, not because... We can become righteous by keeping God's law. But because God is able to justify us, to declare us not guilty of our sin through faith in Jesus Christ. That's, that's the level playing field. That's the level playing field. Uh, and that's what the word justify means. It's a legal term. So if you go to court 
and you have charges leveled against you, you're going to receive one of two verdicts at the end, either guilty or not guilty. If you're guilty, you're condemned. If you're not guilty, you're justified or vindicated. Uh, that's, the, that's the language and imagery that he's using here to talk about what Christ has done for us, uh, for those who believe. And, so, and, and then their question becomes a big question. How is God able to do that when we actually are guilty? We kind of hinted at this yesterday. You know, if, if someone's standing before the judge who's obviously guilty uh, and he declares them not guilty, that judge just lost his job. Um, or at least, you know, some, you know, public social media campaign against him or something, hashtag and all of that kind of stuff. So, so you know, we, it doesn't work that way. How can God be righteous? This, this is what, what so many were questioning. How can he be righteous if he's letting these unrighteous sinners into his covenant community, into his family? Uh, how does that work? Well, here is the basis. And again, this is the key substitution. So looking again, verse 23, 24, through the redemption, we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is a picture of buying someone out of slavery, buying someone back, redeeming. Like uh, if you... uh, uh, in the Old Testament, if you if you went destitute and you had to sell your land, um, you had a, the chance to redeem it, to buy it back, or 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 a relative could redeem it for you and buy it back, pay off your debt. So it's a picture of our our debt, the debt that comes that we have before God because of our sin is being paid off by a relative, by Christ, our representative, our brother and friend. He's paying the debt, buying us back so we can receive a not guilty verdict. But the only way he can do that is if he takes our guilty verdict for us. And that's the picture of what Paul calls here an atoning sacrifice or a propitiation by his blood. How is it that our penalty has been paid? It's been paid by another. Verse 25, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood, a sacrifice of atonement by his blood to be received by faith. The price of our redemption is the blood of Christ. That's what it costs to pay our sins, to buy us out of slavery, to clear the charges. It meant that Jesus, who was completely sinless, uh, never wronged his father, never wronged anybody else, was the perfect covenant keeper. He was true Israel. He was the only faithful Israelite. Everyone else had fallen away. At the cross, Jesus is the remnant of Israel. He's the only faithful one. And he stands in our place as a representative so that our sin is credited to his account and his righteousness is credited to our account. Uh, Theologians call this the great exchange where, where we get all the credit for his righteousness, and he takes all the blame for our sin. It's an amazing arrangement, isn't it? That is grace. That is grace. We're justified by his grace, not because we did anything to earn it, but as a gift, a free gift by his grace. And what makes grace possible is substitution. If he had not taken our place, 
sin would not have been dealt with. And God would not therefore be just. But in order for God to be both just and the one who justifies, to be righteous as a judge and the one who declares sinners righteous, the only way both of those things can be true at the same time is through a substitute who takes our guilty verdict so that God deals justly with sin and can deal, therefore, mercifully uh, with sinners. He did it through this substitution. And, that, and that's what the word propitiation, we, it's a big you know, word we don't use very often anymore. Um, some of our translations uh, uh, say atoning sacrifice or sacrifice of atonement. Those are fine translations. Um, but the idea of propitiation there is a sacrifice that bears the wrath of God. God's holy anger against our sin is satisfied through that sacrifice. So it's not that he just shrugged it off. It's not that he deflected it, you know, like a shield. It's that he took it. He exhausted it. He, uh, he t- it it's the picture of uh, not dousing a flame, but, but letting that flame exhaust everything there is that needs to be burned up. That's what Christ did on the cross with our sin. And it's, you know, Bruce talked about the picture of the cup uh, yesterday. The cup in the Old Testament, it's not just a metaphor for uh, anything. It's a consistent metaphor for the wrath of God. For instance, Jeremiah twenty-five fifteen. Thus, the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. So throughout the Old Testament, that's, the, that's a common picture for God's wrath. So when Jesus is in the garden and he prays, Lord, Father, uh, let this cup pass. He's talking specific. He knows full well what's about to happen. The punishment for every sin ever committed by any human who's ever lived or ever will live, the full weight of hell was about to be poured out on him. Father, let this cup pass. But... Not my will, your will be done. He was a willing sacrifice who willingly took the cup of God's wrath and drained it to the dregs such that there is now no wrath left for the believer in Christ. You, if your faith is in Jesus, you cannot be condemned for your sin on the final day because there's no punishment left. It was exhausted, it was consumed, it was satisfied. You are free. You are not guilty. You have been redeemed. That's what Christ accomplished through our substitution, through his substitution for us. And again, it's so that God can be both the just and the justifier. He deals justly with sin and mercifully by declaring sinners not guilty. And this is applied, Paul says, to all who believe, to everyone who has faith, in Jesus. That's how we partake of his benefits on the cross. The only way that this applies to us is if we say no to every other would-be savior, including ourselves. Though, God, I've messed up. I'm going to make it up to you. Um, I'm going to be my own savior. That's what we're saying when we say things like that. I'm going to make it up to you. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. I'm going to show up for church. I'm going to maybe make Bible study or something, and, and I'm going to stop yelling at my kids, and da da, da and we and repentance is, an, is a good thing to do. We should stop sinning, but you are not justified because of your repentance. 
You are not declared not guilty because of what you do. You are not your own savior. There's no key in that drawer that will unlock the door. Instead, we're justified through faith in Jesus. We say no to any other would-be savior, ourselves or anything else. We say yes to Christ alone. And we put the full weight of our hope in Christ such that if, if we were to find out he isn't who he says he is, we are lost and without hope because I had all my eggs in that basket. That's the kind of faith God calls us to. That's the kind of faith. And through faith in Jesus, we're united with him. He becomes our savior. He's our representative. He's our substitute. And therefore, we can be forgiven. He is the only key that unlocks the door to the riches that we have in God. So that's the key. What I want to do now is take just a few minutes and explore the room. What kind of treasures do we find when we actually enter into this room and see the riches of relationship with Christ? And what we're going to do, we're going to go on a whirlwind tour of Romans. And we're just going to look, because Paul spends the first part of his book establishing the fact that, that our righteousness is not through what we do, it's not through Israel's law, it's through Christ and faith in him, and that God shows that he's righteous by doing that. And then from the rest of the book, he tells us all what that means and, and the benefits that come from being found in Jesus. And so, and I've given you the list in your handout, so because uh, we're going to move through it pretty quick. But it's kind of like, you know, walking into the treasury and kind of picking up each piece of gold and admiring it. That's what I want to do for a minute. Each jewel. Uh, and, and this is a short list. But here we go. And each phrase you can see is, since Jesus is your substitute, this. This is all based on Jesus being your substitute. These are the riches we have in Christ since Jesus is your substitute. Number one, you are blessed. Romans 4, 7 through 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. If there was a definition of blessing in Scripture, this is it. And think about that. You know, understand that whatever you face in this world, whatever you do, whatever trials you bear, uh, whatever hardships you go through, your biggest problem has already been decisively dealt with through Jesus. That is, as hard as life gets, the number one thing wrong with this world, the number one threat hanging over your head is gone. You are blessed. You are blessed. God does not count your sin against you. That means you can have a relationship with God and enjoy his presence forever. You are blessed. He counts no sin against you. Number two, since Jesus is your substitute, you do not have to live in guilt and shame. Again, for seven and eight, your lawless deeds are forgiven. The Lord will not count them against you. It's, it's normal to feel guilty when we sin. It's normal to feel shame uh, about who we are when we mess up. And, and, and it's not as though God doesn't use that guilt to kind of move us to want to hate sin and, and want to 
pursue righteousness. God uses that. But guilt should not define your life. Shame should not define your life because God does not count your, righteous, your uh, sinful deeds against you. The, the, the charges are clear. You don't have to walk under that dark cloud. You don't have to question who you are or your value as though you should be ashamed of who you are. Your charges are clear. Your identity is not what you have done or what you've done wrong. Your identity is what Christ has done for you. And God will never love you more based on what you do for him than how he loves you, than he loves his son. And the way he loves you is according to the way he loves his son because that's your identity in Christ. You are blessed. You do not have to live in shame or guilt related to that again. Since Jesus is your substitute, you do not have to perform for God. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. Now to the one who works, works not in terms of going to a job, but trying to work off your debt to God. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So your righteous status, your not guilty verdict is not come through something you earn. Which means, again, God does not love us more when we're good or less when we're bad. If Jesus is your substitute, he loves you just as much as he loves his son. Think about that. If Jesus is your substitute, God loves you just as much as he loves his son because you have been united with him. Which doesn't mean obedience doesn't matter. Uh, It does. Paul talks a lot about that too. So does Jesus. Um, But we obey not in order to be loved or to get accepted by God. We obey because we are loved and we are accepted by God through Christ. Number four, since Jesus is your substitute, you have peace with God. Chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, not guilty, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the sin, one of the effects of sin was to make us enemies of God. We are basically those who think we would do a better job running the world than the king. And so we've uh, formed a, a rebellious coup to take over the throne of heaven and make up our own decisions about how the world should be run. That's what sin is. Um, and that sin makes us enemies of God. But through Jesus, since we've been declared not guilty of our sin, those charges have been dropped because the the punishment's been paid. That means we're no longer enemies with God. We have peace with God. We've been reconciled. The relationship that was once broken is now made whole. And if we have peace with God, number five, you have access to God. Chapter 5, verse 2. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You have full permission to go before God in heaven in prayer to appear before him and know that your prayers will be heard because they have been sanctified by the blood of Christ. You, who deserve to be rotting in the dungeon like me, 
have been invited to the dinner table in the family of God where you can have conversation with God whenever you want. You don't, your mediator is Jesus. You don't need another mediator. This is one of the reasons that uh, you know, we don't practice the kind of uh, confession where you have to confess your sins to me or something and then I have to... I don't know. We'll do this. Excellent. So, so you don't have to confess your sins to me. I'm not your mediator. I'm your shepherd. I'm not a mediator. Jesus is your mediator. And because of him, you have full access to the Father in heaven. You can pray to him whenever you want. Uh, Tim Keller uses the illustration. Um, uh, and we'll, I'll, I'll just kind of draw on an illustration he's used. Uh, imagine you know, trying to call the White House at 2 a.m. in the morning to talk to President Obama. How many of you think you would get through? No. No, I don't think you'd get through for, you know, months on end. Who's the one person who can wake up President Obama at 2 a.m. and ask for a glass of cold water? His daughters. That's the kind of access we have to God. He is the king of the universe, the sovereign over all creation, and he's the kind of king you can quote as he doesn't sleep, so again, analogy breaks down, but that you could wake up at 2 a.m. to ask for a glass of cold water. That's your relationship. That's the access we have to God through faith in Jesus. Number six, and you have the hope of glory. Continuing in verse two, we rejoice in the hope of glory. We can be confident that in that if God used the cross, the ugliest, brutalist moment in human history, to reveal his glory, we know that he is at work in us through every circumstance to magnify his glory through us and that this will end well. Whatever it is you're going through, whatever trials you face, we know that because of Jesus, who has gone before us and who is already glorified in heaven, this will end well. God will accomplish his purposes. He will reveal his glory. He will use our suffering to make for our good and for his glory. Number number eight, since Jesus is your substitute, you are dead to sin. Chapter six, verse six, it no longer has jurisdiction over you. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We have been, we are dead to sin. It has no right to tell you what to do and you are not obligated to obey it anymore. You're not bound. You have been set free. Number nine, if Jesus is your substitute, you've been set free from sin. You're no longer its slave. Chapter six, verse 17. But thanks be to God that we who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin we have become slaves of righteousness we are free to obey god through jesus our substitute number 10 if jesus is your substitute you do not have to fear condemnation romans 8:1 there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus no wrath left. 
for the believer. It was exhausted on Christ in your place so that you do not need to fear the judgment day. How many people struggle with fear of death? I mean, that is the most common fear among humanity. And, you know, you get it. There's a big old unknown out there. Even for all of your theology and doctrine, there's still a lot of unknown, and it's kind of a scary thing to think about. The reality is, for those who are in Jesus Christ, there is no fear of condemnation. There's no fear of condemnation. The punishment you deserve for your sin has been paid in full. Paid in full, like Bruce talked about. Number 11, since Jesus is your substitute, you have the Spirit of God in you. The Holy Spirit, chapter 8, verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit who gives life to our mortal bodies, who gives us the ability to walk with God, who, who gives us the mind to be able to understand and hear God. He, he is the one who changes our lives, who, who helps us say no to sin and yes to God. You have the Spirit of God in you. The same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead now dwells within you. That's the power at your disposal for walking with and serving God. Number 12, since Jesus is your substitute, you have a new Father. Chapter 8, verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You are part of God's family. Again, you who belong in the dungeon are now invited to the table, the dinner table, the family of God. You can call on God as Father. Number 13, since Jesus is your substitute, you have a new inheritance. 8, 16, and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, if you've got a new father, guess what? You are also an heir. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We who were once dead in our sin now share an internal inheritance of the Son of God. That is amazing. We deserve to lose everything. Instead, through Jesus, we gain everything. Everything. Paul says later in chapter 8, if if he did not spare his own son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? We have an inheritance that we can't even begin to imagine in Christ. Number 14, since Jesus is your substitute, you have hope in the midst of suffering. 818, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. If Christ was exalted on the other side of the cross, we can trust that God will also lift us up on the other side of our suffering. And that when that happens, the glory will not be worth, the, the suffering we experience will not be worth comparing to the glory on the other side. Number 15, since Jesus is your substitute, you have hope that everything will be made new in the end. Just as Christ rose from the dead in the newness of glory, we who are in him will share in that resurrection and glory when God renews his broken creation. Romans 8, 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, the day when all of this frustrating stuff that we put up with and broken bodies that don't work and, and broken relationships and all this kind of stuff will finally be done and we will be made completely new. That, that the new life we have received uh, in the Spirit will be true of our bodies and everything else in creation. God's will will be fulfilled and accomplished. That's what we talked about last year here. Number 16, since Jesus is your substitute, the Spirit of God intercedes for you. He gives you voice to the cries of your heart even when you don't know how to pray. Have you ever been in that moment where you're hurting so bad and you don't even have the ability to form the words and the thoughts to pray to God? Well, guess what? The Spirit of God is in that moment interceding for you on your behalf. That's amazing because he knows the thoughts of your heart and the mind of God and knows how to connect the dots when you can't. Number 17, since Jesus is your substitute, Jesus himself also intercedes for you right now, sitting at the Father's side, defending your name, pleading his blood on your behalf against any charge that might be leveled against you. 834, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. No charge against you will ever get past your defense attorney. And that's what Jesus is doing right now on your behalf. It's amazing. Number 18. Since Jesus is your substitute, your victory is secure. 837, in all of these things, all of the trials, this laundry list of trials, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're more than conquerors, not because we're so tough. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. He conquered. And if we're in him, we conquer too. Number 19, since Jesus is your substitute, God's love for you is secure. 839, 838 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing that can happen to you in this world that can ever drive a wall between God's love for you and you. Not if Jesus is your substitute, your advocate, your high priest, your savior and king. There's nothing that can ever separate you from God's love. It is secure for all eternity. Number 20. If Jesus is your substitute, you have a mission to tell others about him. Chapter 10, verse 14. How are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching. So one of Paul's big burdens in all of this is not just that you personally would understand the riches of that room, but that you would invite others to come explore it and enjoy it with you. And and that means telling them about the key, telling them about the gospel of Christ, the one key that can unlock the full riches of relationship with God. We have a mission to make him known. Number 21 Since Jesus is your substitute, your worship is acceptable 
to God. Chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. But what is it that makes that sacrifice acceptable? By the mercies of God. Because you have been covered by the blood of Jesus, the worship, the imperfect worship. How many of us paid attention to every single word we sang this morning? And our mind wasn't drifting at all, thinking about the rain or the humidity or where I set my coffee or the emails I need to reply when I get home. You know, our worship is impure. Our worship is impure. Uh, how, you know, what do other people think of me singing? Are they going to think I'm good or bad? Or, you know, all sorts of stuff that goes through our heads. So our worship, anytime we offer it to God, is imperfect and impure, but it is sanctified by the blood of Christ and therefore acceptable as a pleasing offering to him. If Jesus is your substitute, your worship is acceptable to God. Number 22, since Jesus is your substitute, you don't have to seek revenge when someone wrongs you. You are free to forgive and to let God worry about justice. Chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. How is it that we can, you know, love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? Uh, because we can trust God to take care of the justice part. Our part is to love and to have mercy, to pray for their salvation, um, and and and. I don't have to take, I don't have to become the judge, jury, and executioner when someone wrongs me. I can leave that. Which, you notice, it doesn't mean that it's just saying it wasn't bad or it wasn't wrong. God's not saying just forget about it like it wasn't a big deal. If it's sin and wickedness, it will be dealt with either in one of two ways. Either being included in what Christ paid for on the cross where there is forgiveness for that person or by bearing the penalty themselves. Justice will be served. And so we pray by God's mercy that they would come to Christ and find that forgiveness. But justice will be served, which means you don't have to take the sword into your own hand. You don't have to get vindication for yourself. Trust Jesus. Number 23, since Jesus is your substitute, you are free to love regardless of what you get in return. Twelve nineteen through 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So often, uh, we our love is conditioned uh, subtly on what we're going to get in return for it. Uh, so if I love you, I'm kind of expecting you to return the favor. Uh, that's how it works. It's only fair. Jesus frees me to love you regardless of whether or not you ever even consider returning the favor. Because my identity and satisfaction doesn't come from you showing affection to me. I have all the affection I need in Christ. And so therefore, I'm free to love regardless of what I get out of it. If Jesus is my substitute, that's possible. And that's just a few example in Rome, examples in Romans. We're just scratching the surface. I mean, you could go through the rest of the letters. You could go through the whole Bible. Um, you know, for instance, you don't have to be strong. You can admit your weakness in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 12, 19, or 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
If Jesus is my substitute, I don't have to be the strong one. It's okay to be honest about how hurt and broken and weak I am. Uh, 25, if Jesus is my substitute, I don't have to look to the things of this world to find happiness or identity. I could be satisfied in Christ. If Jesus is my substitute, I don't have to worry about offering any additional sacrifices for sin to appease God's wrath. His sacrifice was enough once for all time for all people. Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There's nothing I need to add to the cross in order to deal with my sin. It's done. It's finished. You know, I think Romans, I think Paul sums it up beautifully in Romans chapter 11. When you think about the marvel of substitutionary atonement and the marvel of all of the gifts and riches that we have in Christ through that key. Romans eleven thirty-three to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might ever be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, it is impossible for us to take in the full magnitude of the riches and gift and blessing that we have in Christ. Lord, we thank you and we love you. You are so good. Would you help us to never grow tired or bored with the truth of substitutionary atonement? To never get complacent as though our sin wasn't that big a deal. And so therefore Christ's sacrifice wasn't that big a deal. Lord, may we never lose our awe. And when we do, would you bring us back to the cross? And would you help us to apply the cross to every aspect of life? To recognize that since Jesus is our substitute, we have the full riches of life with you through him. In part now and fully when he returns. We praise you for this, God, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.